Please join. Evening, everybody. I guess there's more people here than there were this morning for obvious reasons. So that's quite uh, positive. If you are visiting with us at uh, Connect tonight, really great to have you with us. Uh, always value having visitors, and, and I trust we will have an opportunity to get to know you uh, a little bit later. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors. I'm here at the church. Uh, right at the moment, we are going through probably one of the most difficult books in the whole of the Bible, and that is Hebrews. And uh, we've really been digging deep, and you need to dig deep. And it's certainly one of those books that stirs up quite a lot of discussion. You just need to ask Rolls after what he preached on last night, and you'll discover there's a, last night, last week, you'll discover there's a lot of uh, discussion that comes from the book of Hebrews. And I, I guess the reason for that is that it, you, you really go deep when you get into Hebrews. This is not surface stuff. This is really deep stuff uh, that uh, we're going to be looking at. Now, we're going to talk tonight about a rather strange individual um, called Melchizedek. And uh, really great, glad my name is not Melchizedek. It's one of those very unusual names from the Old Testament. What, what's so unusual about Mel Melchizedek is, is that if you read about him in the Old Testament, there are only four verses in Genesis chapter 14 and one verse in Psalm 110 that speaks about Melchizedek. And then when you get to Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews develops this whole theology based on who Melchizedek is. And so as I began to, to get into this, I asked myself this question, because I do think it's handy to ask yourself a question when you're reading the Bible, and it's this. Why in the world does the writer to Hebrews talk about Melchizedek? What's his point? Why, why would you go to look at somebody and, and unpack the life of somebody who seems to be so insignificant in the Old Testament and then make such a big deal out of it? And I think that's the question that we're meant to ask. And the answer to that question, I want to tell you right up front, is because Melchizedek was a priest. And as we look at the life of Melchizedek, we discover something about the high priestly ministry of Jesus. That's the connect that we are meant to make. And, and for the writer to Hebrews, and I guess you would have picked this up as we've been making our way through Jesus, there's one thing in his mind that's important. It's Jesus. It's the only thing that's really important to him. So everything that he begins with, he lands back with Jesus. And he's going to do exactly the same thing tonight. And so for us to really understand the significance of what we're going to talk about this evening, I want us to go back into the Gospels. And I want us to go back for a minute to, to look at perhaps to me one of the most important questions that Jesus ever asked his disciples. And it's this question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Jesus is asking that question for an important reason. He's asking that question because he wants to discover whether his disciples have really come to an understanding of who he is. And so when, when Peter answers that question and says, you are the Christ, which means you are the promised Jewish, Jewish Messiah. You are the anointed one of God. You are the son of the most high God. Jesus realizes that now 
they're beginning to understand. And based on what they say, Jesus says, I will build my church. And it's a church that the gates of Hades will not prevail against. But then there's something else that's quite important. Jesus, as he, as he hears what they have to say, says to them, this is impossible for you to have come to this conclusion on your own. This truth that Jesus, I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God, that I am the Anointed One of God, this has been revealed to you by my Father who's in heaven. Now, I want you to know this this evening, and, and I'll get to the point in a minute. The most important thing in the church is Jesus. The church is all about Jesus. It's not about you and me. It's actually about him. And so that is hugely important that we understand. The Apostle Paul, when he was, uh, when he was speaking about why he was willing to consider everything that had ever been important to him as rubbish, as worthless, it's because in comparison to Jesus, nothing else really counted. Can we put that verse up? I want us just to read that because I think this is so important when we come to Hebrews to understand how important Jesus is. If we can put the next slide up, please. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider, and he goes again, everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. And you know that word he's using. It's like the word we would use for cow dung. And here's the point. For Paul, getting to know Jesus was more important than career. It was more important than his wealth. It was more important than family ancestry. It was more important than his popularity. It was more important than his position in life. There was nothing that could compare with getting to know Jesus. And I think... Getting to know Jesus, Jesus should still be like that for us today. He's the single most important thing. Everything is insignificant in comparison to Jesus. So when we come to Hebrews chapter 7, which is what we're going to be looking at tonight, the writer to the Hebrews wants to remind these believers and the reason he's doing this is because they're feeling the pain of persecution, that they had a great high priest that they could turn to, one who was far greater, he says, even than Melchizedek. You see, these, these Jewish believers were being tempted to turn back to Judaism because they were being persecuted, and the persecution was becoming intense, and so they were being tempted to turn back to Judaism but if they were going to turn back to Judaism, it would also mean they'd need to renounce Christ. And so he's wanting to encourage them by refocusing their attention on Christ. And I've discovered that when it gets tough and when it's hard and when it's costly to be a Christian, there's going to be the temptation to trust in other things rather than Jesus. 
Jesus isn't just a great example to admire. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our High Priest. Jesus is the only one who is able to save us completely. So let's have a look at uh, Hebrews. I'm going to read these verses together. And uh, I'm going to take time to read God's Word tonight because I think it's so important. What God says in His Word is way more important than what I could say tonight. We're going to start in chapter 6 and verse 13 so that we can have a bit of a context to what chapter 7 is all about. When God made His promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. And then he, he almost personifies this hope, and he says this hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. That's the Holy of Holies, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf, and he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 7. He begins to talk about, firstly, Melchizedek, and then he begins to compare Jesus to Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means, here's the name Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires that the descendants of Levi, who became priests, who become priests to collect a tithe from the, the people, that is their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected the tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Here's the point that he's making. point that he's making is Abraham, in giving this tenth, of all of the plunder that had come after he defeated the kings, acknowledges that Melchizedek is greater than him. And from Abraham come the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those was the priestly tribe. 
It was the tribe of Levi and all the priests that ever officiated in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple came from Levi. And because it was the one tribe that wasn't given any property, any land to live off, they had to live off the tithes that were given by the people. And so what they would do is they would collect the tithe and they would live off the tithe. And so what the, the writer to us is saying over here, because they came from Abraham, when Abraham gave that tithe to Melchizedek, actually all the Levites had done that as well. Verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood on the basis of the law, on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there's a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom... These things are said belong to a different tribe. And no one from the tribe has ever served at the altar. No one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah, the tribe of Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And, and what we've said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of another. Sorry. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who's become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry. In other words, all of the priests became priests because they were Levites. Some of them weren't such great guys. You remember Eli and his sons. They weren't such great guys, but they became priests on the basis of their ancestry. But this one has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing per perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without the oath. Others became priests without an oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death presented prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath, the promise of God, which came after the law, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. 
In other words, what he's saying is Melchizedek is a type of Jesus. So getting to know who Melchizedek is and getting to know what Melchizedek has done helps us to understand the high priestly ministry of Jesus as well. So the, I want to do two very simple things tonight. The first thing that I want to do is, is talk about the uniqueness of Melchizedek. And then secondly, I want us to look at what we can learn from that and from who Melchizedek is when we look at the life of Jesus. So first, let's, let's first have a look at the uniqueness of uh, his priesthood. Now, the very first account that we have of Melchizedek, you're going to find in Genesis chapter 14. There it is. And you'll find that it's very much the same as what it says in Hebrews chapter 7. And so what Hebrews chapter 7 says is that Melchizedek was the king of righteousness. And he's also the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. And so we've got to ask ourselves this question, and I want to ask you tonight, why is it so important for you and me to have a high priest? Why do we need to have a high priest? And the reason we need to have a high priest is because we need the ministry of Jesus in our life. So, so Melchizedek, we discover, one of the unique features of Melchizedek is, is both a priest and he's a king. It's the only place in the Bible where we read about one person becoming both a priest and a king. And you remember the role of a priest was to represent men before God, people before God, and to represent God to the people. But remember, he's also called the king of Righteousness. That's, that's what his name means. He's the king of Salem. What's Salem called today? Jerusalem. So he is the king of righteousness who reigns over the city of peace. That's who Melchizedek is. That much we told about him. He's a king. He's a priest. He's a priest that's been that's been ordained by God to, to serve in the priesthood, but he is also the king of the city called Salem, or the peace of God. The second thing I want you to notice about him is that he is different to the Levitical priests. Here's somebody who's appointed before the law is given, and he's not from the tribe of Levi. Now, here's an interesting thing for all of us to know. All the other priests had a a Jewish background, and we're from the tribe of Levi. Melchizedek is a Gentile. Here we have a priest, very different from all the Levites. And the Levitical priests were, were really unable to fulfill all the requirements of the priesthood because of their own imperfections. So if I was the, the priest and Roland had sinned today, he would bring his lamb or he would bring his dove or whatever, and he'd come to me and say, John, I've sinned today. Won't you bring a sin offering for me? And I would need to first bring my own sin offering because I keep sinning as well, and then I would be able to bring Roland's sin offering as well. So these priests from Levi, they kept on sinning themselves and they couldn't fulfill all the requirements of the priesthood. Then we discover also that, that uh, 
Melchizedek was even greater than Abraham. Remember, Abraham is the man of faith. He is the, the father of the Jewish nation. He's the person to whom God spoke and said, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And the fact that he blessed Abraham is an indication that he was someone greater than Abraham. And in fact, Abraham even gives him a tenth of all his plunder because he recognizes that Melchizedek is one of God's or is God's priest. And so in thanking the Lord for the victory that he had over the kings, he brings a tithe to Melchizedek. And the last thing that I want you to see about his uniqueness is that he has an eternal priesthood. In other words, the Bible says he is without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And what's interesting is not only what the Bible says, but what the Bible doesn't say about him. And the Bible doesn't talk about where he comes from, who his mother and father is, when he dies and what happens to him eventually. And so from that, the writer draws out the fact he has an eternal priesthood. In other words, it's a priesthood that would never end. Now, the point being made over here is that Melchizedek is a lot like Jesus, but Jesus is far greater than Melchizedek. And so almost a, a thousand years later, David, as he begins to consider the Jewish Messiah, the one who would be the Messiah of the Jews, recognizes that the Messiah is not going to be a priest like Levi, like one of the Levites. He's going to be a priest like Melchizedek. And so he says in Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So those are just four unique things about him. Let's just run through them again. He's both priest and king. He's different to the Levitical priests. He's greater than Abraham, and he has an eternal priesthood. Now, there are four things that we learn about the high priestly ministry of Jesus from Melchizedek. The first one is this, that Jesus is the great and perfect high priest. See, many of the accounts that, the accounts that we've got in the Old Testament are there to point people to Jesus. Do you know that if you really want to understand the Old Testament, you need to know it's about one person. It's all about Jesus. If you look at the, 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 some of the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus is journeying with them, and they don't really understand who he, who he is. He has been crucified. Now he's risen and he's walking down the road. And the Bible tells us in Luke's gospel, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, from the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus helped them to understand who he was. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch. When Philip goes to the desert road and he meets with this Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from Isaiah chapter 53, and he leads him to salvation from Isaiah 53, because Isaiah speaks about Jesus. Jesus. 
And what's being pointed out in the, Old, in the New Testament here is every one of us needs a high priest. And Jesus is the perfect high priest that we need. Do you know that you need a high priest? And I need a high priest every day of my life so that we can be saved? We need a high priest so that we can be saved from sin. We need a high priest so that we can be saved from temptation. We need a high priest so that we can be saved from the attacks of the enemy. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer to the Hebrews says, Since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are and yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, because of our humanity, we still fall short. And we will be tempted by Satan. God has provided for us a perfect high priest who's able to save us because he constantly makes intercession for us. I think the realization we all need to come to is that although we have been saved, we are still being saved. And one day we will be saved because our salvation will only be complete when Jesus comes again. I think one of the, the dangerous traps that we've fallen into is thinking about our salvation happen once upon a time one day. Every one of us needs to know we have been saved. We are being saved. And if I can put it to you like this this evening, we will only be completely saved one day when Jesus comes again. That's why we need a high priest. Secondly, we discover from Melchizedek that only Jesus is able to save us completely. See, the problem with the, the Levitical priesthood is the priest kept dying. And, and not only that, all the sacrifices that they brought were not sufficient to satisfy God. And so in verse 11 of Hebrews 7, it says, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, then why was there still need for another priest to come in the order of Melchizedek? That's why, that's why the writer says in verse 25 and 26, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. More than anything else in this world, more important than anything else in this world, is your salvation and my salvation. It's more important than getting married. It's more important than a successful career. It's more important than getting a degree. It's more important than which political party is in power. And it's more important than any hardship we will ever face. You can have a degree, 
and not go to heaven. You can be as wealthy as Bill Gates and not go to heaven. By the way, did you see that he was, he was in Cape Town last week? He's the richest man in the world. But if he doesn't know Jesus, he will not go to heaven. You can be the most successful person in the world. Have all your dreams fulfilled that you ever desire. If you don't know Jesus, you won't go to heaven. And Jesus is our great high priest who constantly and continually makes intercession for us. Look at what Mark says in Mark's gospel. What good will it be for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? You can't exchange popularity for your soul. You can't exchange money for your soul. You can't exchange a degree for your soul. There is nothing in the world that you can exchange for that. It's the single most important thing for anybody to know. And only Jesus can save us completely. The third thing we discover from Melchizedek is that Jesus is the only High priest who's ever satisfied God's requirements for sin. You know, it's only when we take time to focus on what Jesus has done that we can appreciate how sinful we really are in the sight of God. You know, something I realized when I was preparing this is that we don't really understand how sinful we are. I, probably the majority, I hope the majority of you tonight would say, well, I know that I'm a sinner. I wonder how, if you realize how badly you've sinned in the sight of because probably like, like most of us, you think, well, you know, that person who did drugs and all of that, they were a really bad sinner. But you know, I go to church and I've never really done bad things. So I'm not really such a bad sinner. I don't know how many of you, it's a bit going back a while now, saw that movie, The Passion of the Christ. In The Passion of the Christ, there is a scene where, where Jesus is beaten and he's whipped until he's unrecognizable. And I took a crowd from our church to go and see that, and, and I looked at the faces of people after they came out from that movie, and they were traumatized by that. It's quite a traumatic event that happens in the movie. And people were traumatized because they felt sorry for what happened to Jesus. But what happened to Jesus tells us how badly we have sinned, how terrible our sin is in the sight of God. Hebrews 7.27 says, He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when He offered Himself. The prophet Isaiah put it like this, He took up our infirmities. That's yours, and that's mine. He carried our sorrows. And then he makes an interesting comment, yet we considered him stricken by God. In other words, there was a sense that people looked to Jesus and, and felt that, that God had be, was just doing it to him. But he was pierced for you and me. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And when Jesus died on the cross, God was satisfied. But you know, I've never understood it as powerfully as this week when I realize when I look at Jesus, that's how bad I am. That's how far I've failed. And that's how sinful I am. Otherwise, he would never have had to bear the pain and the cross in the way that he did. The fourth thing that comes from this man, Melchizedek, is that Jesus is both a high priest and he is a king. You know, Melchizedek is a, is a prophetic picture of Jesus. And, and when we think about Jesus, we, we often think of Jesus being God's son. Or we think of Jesus being our savior. But the point being made over here is Jesus is also a king. And you know that he's going to be a king who will reign over all things. There's not one of us here tonight who knows what life is going to be like in 10 years' time. But there's one thing I can tell you that we all know. Jesus will reign forever and ever as King of kings and Lord of lords. Doesn't matter which political party comes into power. Doesn't matter how corrupt men become. One day Jesus will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Isaiah says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He is the King of Peace. That's why we're told to put our hope in Jesus. You know that all other things are going to pass away? You've got a nice house, it's going to pass away one day. You've got lots of money, it's going to pass away one day. You've got a fancy degree. You might have just be getting your PhD. I don't want to disappoint you. But I want to tell, tell you one day that's going to be irrelevant. All of our achievements will be as nothing because one day he will reign forever and ever. That's our high priest, Jesus, able to save us completely, paid the price for our sin, the coming king who will reign forever and ever. And he's come that you and I might be saved. You know what the brilliant thing is tonight? Whenever we feel pressure, when we get tempted, when we want to throw in the towel, the Bible says that we can come to him with confidence and he'll give us grace to continue and grace to persevere. Because he constantly and continually makes intercession for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Look, there's only one way that we 
we can finish off our service tonight. And we're going to do that. We're going to worship Him. And we're going to humble ourselves before Him. And we're going to turn to Him. And we're going to focus on Him. And we're going to glorify Him. We're going to honor Him. That's one of the things we're going to do. And uh, I know people don't like to make a spectacle of themselves when, when we sing and worship. But you may, tonight, just where you are, you may even want to just kneel. Just say, God, I want to reverence and honor you again. I want to bring glory to you. I want my life to be a life that's surrendered to you. Because you're worthy. Guys, he's worthy. Then we're going to have communion. You'll see there's some tables where you can have communion. We'll do that while we're worshiping. And there are two things I want you to remember when you have communion. I want you to think about Jesus. Don't just think of a piece of bread. I want you to think of that piece of broken bread reminds us how bad we are and how far we have fallen and how sinful we are. Jesus became our perfect sacrifice. That's the one thing. And the second thing I want you to remember, because of the cross, you are cleansed, and you are forgiven, and you are a new person because of what He has done for for you. Guys, we've got to rejoice when we think of that. Let me just read this to you, and then we'll go into some worship. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels. The Bible says there were thousands upon thousands of them. These angels encircled the throne, and the living creatures and and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the Lamb. Who was slain. Worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then the Apostle John says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and even under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That's Jesus. That's our great high priest. That's what he's done for us. Will you worship him with me? Stuart, come and lead us. there's anybody tonight, and maybe there is, and you never said to Jesus, I want to surrender my life to you. I want to hand it over to you. There's nothing more important than me being saved and knowing that Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord. I want to invite you and
feel free at any stage to do that. If you would like to come to the front, we can pray with you. If you'd like to come and do that afterwards, come and do that afterwards. But I plead with you tonight, don't miss out on the greatest thing you could ever do as give your life to Christ and be saved and be born again and know that you've got a great high priest in heaven. Let's stand.